All right. <clears throat> well, here we are uh, jumping into the Advent season. And um, uh, you may have grown up in, a, in either in an in evangelical denomination like the Baptist Church or a non-denominational church, and you didn't do much to set aside um, Advent. Um, I grew up not really thinking that much about Advent as a thing, other than, you know, typically the pastor would preach maybe more from the Christmas story than other times, or, or, um, or we might have like a musical, you know, that kind of thing, a, a, big, a big musical for the church and the choir or whatever. But there wasn't usually a lot to really consecrate this time. So the word, the word Advent, uh, y'all know I like root words, by the way, is the stole even? I know that OCD among you are going to freak out if it's not. I think it's pretty even. All right, good enough. Um, so the, uh, um, comes from the word ad, uh, advenir, um, which would mean to arrive. Um, the implication meaning a thing is about to happen. Um, again, like I say, it's not typical in evangelical churches to focus a lot of attention on the church calendar. And so um, not being typical in some ways, we really like to embrace the church calendar when it seems appropriate for us to do so. Um, and, and as humans, we're recognizing that even though you know, our, our faith is always growing, even though we're always learning and unlearning things in regards to who God is and who we are, there's a generalized sense in which obviously we don't want to deconstruct fully our faith in God, but we do need to deconstruct our faith in ourselves fully. Um, there needs to come a point at which we give up on us as being able to offer much in the way of salvation. And one of the reminders of that is that we need seasons. Um, something that we should never forget, we of course forget. And so we need things like a season of Advent to remind us, to prepare us for this significant celebration of the, 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 when we celebrate the birth of Christ and what that means. And so, of course, we want to be able to do that. We should remember it every day, but we don't. So we set it apart. We consecrate it. There's a word we've looked at several times in the last few weeks, the idea of consecrating something, setting it apart, having it be sacred. And then we make a remembrance of it. So if you were here last week, you heard Paul teach through... Verse Samuel 7, um, when you have this, this uh, moment when Samuel sets apart a place and a stone and calls it an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance, to remember God has taken us this far. And we all need that, especially in times of high stress or struggle or, or difficulty or, or whatever. Like I, I'm, I, I'm in a business that at the end of the year is always the hardest time of the, of the year for the, a counseling uh, center. And, and so to remember like, okay, I've got to remember that God has brought us this far. And he hasn't failed me yet. And he's probably not going to, right? That's typically how that works. And, and so now there, there may be things that I don't like that he brings into my life, but as far as failing me, he hasn't shown any signs of that. And I have to remember that. And so things like flowers and, and candles and a, and a stole. It's called a stole, by the way, because I stole it from the Anglicans. That's why I call it that. Just kidding. That is not at all why it's called that. That's a uh, total lie. Um, um, okay, so, so in this time, this Advent season, I don't want to stray too far from what we've been talking about in Samuel. And so I created a hypothesis. My hypothesis is this, and, and we're still unpacking whether it's an accurate hypothesis. The hypothesis is this, the Christmas story is revealed in the tabernacle. So we'll see the null hypothesis for all the scientists out there and sixth graders is to, is the, um, is to say, therefore it doesn't, right? It doesn't. The Christmas story is not revealed in the, uh, in the tabernacle. So we'll see whether we reject or accept the null hypothesis before we're done. But why would it even make sense to try that? Why would it even make sense to investigate that? Well, let me show you some of the reasons. Join me in Colossians 2. 
Um, verse 16, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians makes this statement. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or without regard to a festival, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So understand, these holy days, these things we consecrate or set apart for specific remembrance um, to focus our attention are all shadows. They're all shadows of a real thing, like a shadow of a person before they come around the corner. And if you're my age, when you think, oh, a shadow of people coming around the corner, you probably think like I do of Scooby-Doo, right? Because there was always a part of the episode when there was a shadow of something coming around the corner. Um, however, the, one of the greatest marketing, it turned out the movie wasn't so bad, one of the greatest marketing um, efforts at using this, I think is also really cool. Whereas you see the shadow of a sign of things to come. The reality is the boy, but the shadow is giving you insight into, spoiler alert, into who the boy is, right? As to what's going to come from, from this experience, what you're going to experience in this. And so we see this, and what we find is that all throughout Scripture there is the shadow version of the real, and Christ is the fulfillment. He is the the real, the fulfillment of that. And so using the concept of a shadow of Christ as saying, this is everything we're looking at. We're looking through the lens of how does this tell us about Christ? How does this foreshadow Christ? Now, this type of study is called typology. And for those of you interested in that, when you, when you look to scripture or any other literature and you look for types, a type of something. And so some of you know I'm passionate about um, uh, the hero's arc stories and the epic stories and the way those are told. And they're, they're typologies woven all into that. Um, so <coughs> examples, examples of that. We talk about, for example, God being father. And we can get it reversed, whereas we say, oh, I, I'm a father and God is somehow like me. That's what we mean when we say God is father. No, that's a reversal. You've just, you've just reversed it. It isn't that God is Father in some way like I am. I'm the shadow. He is the reality. He isn't the shadow and I'm the reality. We would never want to say that. I am the shadow. I'm the shadow version of a father. I am a poor excuse for a father compared to the father. He is the ultimate. He was father before any humans existed. There were no humans when he was father. He is the ultimate expression of Father. And so the degree to which I portray or exhibit the paternal traits of God, I am a good Father. The, the, way that, the degree to which the shadow is more like the original, it's a good shadow, so to speak. Make sense? The same thing would be true, obviously, when it comes to mothers in regards to God. God is also the ultimate expression of mother. He is the, the maternal traits of God are also clear throughout Scripture. And so you would say to the degree that someone is a, is a, exemplifies the maternal traits of God, then they would be a good mother. Um, and that's, that's what we're looking for. That's going to be our standard for any of these type of things. When we look at that. So everything in the tabernacle, for example, okay, another one I got to comment on. Sometimes we'll say, um, I'll reference the fact that we'll talk about people joining our dysfunctional family here. That's another typology statement. Um, I'm not saying we're a toxic family or an abusive family. That's not what we're trying to communicate, right? Hopefully exactly the opposite. What we're acknowledging is that we are a poor shadow of what God intends. That God's perfect picture of family, we recognize we're just not going to pull that off on our own. I mean, if you've ever met any other humans, you know we're not going to do that well. 
We've just gone through Thanksgiving. You've been reminded of how poor an example many of our families are when it comes to exemplifying God's model of family. Our marriages are messed up. Our families are messed up. All this stuff, which as if the idea is we're the shadow version. We need the reality to make us whole. That is the very picture of the shadow, of the type. We are a type. This may sound weird to you, but we are a type of Christ. We are created in the image of God. We are a typology. You should be getting to know God better by getting to know us better. You should, the way we relate to the person at the checkout counter or, or at the restaurant or, and this is where it gets tough, at home, in our bedroom, that should look like a typology of Christ. That people are getting to know Christ better, almost like we're his ambassadors. Not creating his image. That's what this is all about. So my theory is that there's enough typology of Christ and even of the nativity found in the tabernacle that we can unwrap this. Um, everything in the tabernacle is a physical representation of the true temple that is found in the throne room of God. And today's topic, the sevenfold lamp, is a great example. We see it in, for example, Revelation 1.20, as Christ interprets what John is seeing in this vision. He sees Christ in His glory, and then later Christ explains it. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, or in some of your versions it will say the sevenfold lampstand, um, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in, in seeing all of these laws, rules, holy days, sacrifices, the construction of a tent, and by the way, it takes 45 chapters to describe throughout Scripture the construction of the tabernacle. That's a, that's a lot of acreage to take up Scripture. But we, what we're going to see is, hopefully what we're going to see is that the tabernacle was already teaching us about the person of Christ and about His advent, His coming. So for example... A couple following Jesus, a couple of Jesus' followers um, meet a seemingly uninformed stranger on the road to Emmaus. Um, Jesus has been crucified, and, and it, well, you're about to see where the story picks up, where they are in the story. Um, and so, spoiler alert, that the uninformed stranger is actually Jesus, just so you know. But that is, that's what, they're, they're talking to him, and we see this in Luke 24, and they're telling him he seems so uninformed, they can't believe he doesn't know what's going on. How could anyone not know what's going on? And so they're explaining it to him, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 22 from Luke's Gospel. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. Now, I've got to stop there. What a perfect example of men retelling a story a woman told them. They did not say they saw a vision of angels. They said they saw angels. Um, they saw angels. We see that clearly. They saw angels. Can't you just hear a man going like, they say they saw, I mean, I'm sure it was a vision, a vision of angels. Like he's got to kind of clean up the story for his crazy, for the crazy women, right? So, so they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of these who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Don't you like they're so shocked by that? Oh my gosh, it was just like they said. But him, they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
All the Bible teachers out there, what would you give? What would you give to have a copy of that? John, what would you give to have a, give a copy of what verse 27 summarizes? I, I, it's where was Matthew when you need him, right? He, someone needed to be writing a verbatim down of everything he said there. But notice what he said. Interpreting to them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted all the scriptures of things concerning himself. I think maybe one of the things he explained was the tabernacle. He unpacked all the scriptures pointing to him. The prophets, sure, that's not hard. We could look at all the prophecies and we have before, but Moses, the law, the tabernacle? Okay, let's start with then. Well, remember the purpose of the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle was to create a way for God to dwell with his people. This holy, righteous God, this radioactive God whose holiness was lethal to humanity, and he said, I'm going to come and dwell among you, and I'm going to create a place that makes it safe for you for me to do so. In Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. For God to dwell with humanity. That probably sounds familiar to you, especially this time of the year. There's another place where we pick up a story of a man who is betrothed to a woman and she has turned up pregnant. Now that's bad news, especially if you're not the one who got her pregnant. And so he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do here? What do, how do I handle this situation? Um, and so he's trying to decide what he's going to do, but an angel gives him of some very strange news. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, starting verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. God save us, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And just in case uh, Matthew realizes you may not do your homework, he explains what it means, which means God with us. Same language, same terminology. John communicates this theological truth in his gospel in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word, therefore, dwelt means to pitch a tent. In fact, some of you, if you have a version other than the ESV, it will say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It is a clear reference that Jesus is doing and fulfilling what God intended with the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a type of Christ. It is a precursor. It is a forerunner. It is teaching us about the idea of God coming and being with us, dwelling with us. So here's my goal to show the connections between Emmanuel, God with us, and the four items described in the Mishkan, the furniture that says God dwells with us. So let, first let's look inside of the tabernacle. And so we have the inside of the tabernacle um, has these four items, and we're going to go over all four of them during the Advent, during the four weeks of Advent. But the one that we're starting with today is the lamp stand, the golden lamp stand. That's where we're going to start. So be careful, I'm going to try my best to show you the difference between something that's merely a correlation. 
Maybe it's even just a cool insight that's just a human insight. We don't always know which of, the, which of these things they fall into, by the way, this, these three categories. Is it, is it just we saw something cool, and so we wrote it down, and we made a big deal about it, and sold a book in Christian publishing because we had this cool insight that has nothing to do with the Bible or God? Maybe. That can happen, and it happens easily sometimes. We sometimes get off track, and we do that. It doesn't mean it's not a cool insight. It doesn't even mean it's not the Holy Spirit encouraging us and guiding us. It just means we kind of came up with a cool thing. So an example I like to use of that is when someone pointed out to me that the letters USA are in the middle of the word Jerusalem. Okay? The USA is in the middle of the word Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? And my response is, yes, that's cool. I, I don't know that we should read much into that. Like, I don't know that God is somehow giving us some insight about the relationship between Jerusalem and the United States with that, right? Is it a cool insight? Absolutely. Sure. Is, is that comforting or encouraging to you? Maybe so. There's nothing wrong with that. But is it a biblical insight? Did God either design it that way or did the authors intentionally include it that, which are other two options? I don't think so. I think that's just a human insight. That's fun. But that's just a correlation that we've discovered. There's also times when the author of the, the author, the person writing it down, they give us a, a cool insight that helps us understand something. So for example, um, in the Gospel of Mark, we have Mark tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The way Mark tells this story, it is, in my opinion, very clearly aligned to the 23rd Psalm. That he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he had them sit down by the Sea of Galilee, and he fed them in groups, and he had them sit down on the green grass. It actually says green grass. Like, I think, I think clearly the author Mark there is taking Peter's information and putting it down in a way that connects that story to the 23rd Psalm. And that's important insight. We need to understand that type of insight. And I think the author intended that. The third question is this. Did God intentionally set up the feeding of the 5,000 so that it looked like the 23rd Psalm? Or was that Mark seeing or Peter seeing the connection and writing that in, in which case we connect to it. So is it, is it a God-ordained intentional thing is it an insight from Holy Scripture through the Holy Spirit, or is it just a correlation that we've made? That we go, oh, that's cool. Now, I'm, I struggle with this. I'm explaining all this because I struggle with typology because I'm a skeptic. And so anytime people say, oh, look how these two things are linked, my instinct is immediately to go like, mm, no, nah, I don't think so. That's, always, that's my automatic instinct. It's like, oh, yeah, you just made that up, right? And so I've got to be careful. Some of you may be the opposite. You may be the like, you love to jump on all these cool little insights. And if that's you, that's cool too. We just have to work together to, to reach something that's healthy. I want to be careful to show you that. So another example. Notice how the design of the way the items are laid out in the tabernacle kind of form a cross. Is that intentional? Did God hardwire it to form a cross? I don't know. I think that's pushing it. I think God put them in there. They do kind of form a cross. The whole building doesn't. You would think he would have somehow arranged that a little more clearly if he wanted that to be absolutely the case. Is that just a human cool insight? Maybe. Is it encouraging? Sure. Why not? I think a much more important one, which we'll talk about next week, is that what you may notice of these items, which is how four of the six of them have poles through them because of how mobile the tabernacle was meant to be. Everything's supposed to be movable. That's a cool insight. We'll get to that maybe next week. But when we look at the furniture, is that the case? I don't know. Typology, like I said, is hard for a skeptic like me. Now we're going to get to, by the time we get to the Ark of the Covenant, the connection between, for example, Jesus 
and the Aaronic, meaning Aaron, the, the family of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. That, I think, is very intentional. I think God hardwired that into the priesthood to teach us about the coming of His Son. We'll get there in a few weeks as well. So give, showing you examples of different ones of these, and we don't always know where they are, so listen to the Spirit to guide you as we go through it. <clears throat> Certainly, the connection of Jesus to light is intentional. The speaking of light, we will start by looking at Christ, looking for Christ in the menorah. <coughs> so let's have a picture of the menorah in the tabernacle. No one knows exactly what the menorah looked like, what the, what the lampstand, the sevenfold lampstand looked, time at, looked like at the time of Moses. We do have a very good idea of what it looked like at the time of Jesus, though. The time of Jesus, it would have looked like uh, probably about like this, which is how it's drawn and why it's drawn this way, probably, so that we would say uh, this is a correct picture. The reason we know that is because not of the Hebrews, but of the Romans. When Titus conquered um, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and stole all the items out of the temple, they made an arch to honor his victory, and they carved this into the arch of Titus stealing all the stuff from the temple. That gives us a pretty good concept of what the menorah looked like, at least at the time of the Romans, when the Romans were stealing the menorah, which is about the time of Jesus. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? So pretty cool. This is a symbol of the, the oil lamp. Is, we see what it looks like. So let's get some descriptions of it. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Ready? This was the command of God. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Now, immediately this triggered uh, a little exchange between me and my computer. Google, what is a calyx? The answer was the sepals of a flower. Google, what is a sepal? <laughs> Each of the parts of the calyx of a flower. <laughs> was super helpful. Luckily, Google image search helped me out. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, this is a diagram of a flower. The calyx is the combination of sepals, that little, that little leaf cup that forms at the base of a flower to protect it. That's the calyx. Here's what's significant about that. Notice that God wants every accurate biological part of the flower hammered into each different bulb of the menorah. Like he wants it done Right. He wants it to be precise with every part of the growing almond flower. Um, that's significant. Okay, verse 32. We'll pick up, the pick up there. And there shall be six branches going out on its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. This is intense, right? Very detailed. Verse 36, their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and its trays shall be made of pure gold. 
So based on the Exodus instructions and the historical accounts that exist, some Jews in Israel have recreated one in preparation for a new temple if it's ever built. This is what it looks like. Um, now in typical, by the way, in typical Jewish fashion, they just, just kind of bald-faced lied about that being the actual one. And they put it out in the middle of a square. It may be actually a talent of pure gold. Um, which we'll talk about in a second, that they put out in this glass encasement so people wouldn't touch it. They, they love to hide things in plain sight sometimes over there. Um, uh, recently, it's been moved from that site. Uh, no one knows exactly why. So that's always leads to all kinds of conspiracies. But that's the, that's the you see how big it is, how significant it is, and see the, you see the multiple um, calyxes and flowers growing up through the side. They did it exactly the way it's supposed to look. Each stage of fruit is in it. Buds, blossoms, and almonds. Why? Why the almond? Isn't that what you think? Like Of all the trees, why the almond tree? What's, what's with that? Um, um, so the Hebrew word for almond means wakeful or hastening, like someone who jumps up out of bed, wakes up suddenly and jumps up out of bed and goes to work. Why is, it, why is that the name for the almond? Well, because it is in Israel the first tree to flower every year. It's always the first one to flower. And so there's a lot of significance to the almond in that it's, it, as it flowers first, it lets you know that life is coming back to the land. And it represents many, many rabbis think when they picture the tree of life in the garden, they picture an almond tree. Um, that's what they picture. Um, verse 39, it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you in the mountain. A talent of gold. No one knows exactly how much that weighed. The lowest estimate is 75 pounds. That it would be 75 pounds of gold. Um, it, it goes all the way up to well into the hundreds. But the price of gold today is right now is about $1,800 an ounce. So in other words, this would be somewhere in the area of, in today's time, about $2 million worth of gold at the low end. Um, that's pretty shocking when you consider. That's how significant this picture is. I think its value is meant to be a precursor of, of how important this thing is. Let's talk about the design. Here's some other interesting features that we may see as correlation or we may see as, as something that God has hardwired into it. On the design, a central post with six wings, six coming off each side. So I have a, a um, Hanukkah menorah, which is very different, obviously, because one, it's got candles rather than, um, rather than oil lamps. Um, there's also another important difference, which is there's nine, not seven, right? This is, this is because in, in the Hanukkah, um, the Hanukkah was a celebration of eight days of a miracle of oil that when they were having to rededicate the temple, they only had one container of oil that was still consecrated and all the others had been profaned or lost. And so they only had one day and it takes at least seven full days to get new oil. And so they, how do we get new oil? They did one day and that, that one container of oil lasted eight days until they get more oil. That's why they have eight days to celebrate what God, had, what God did for them at this event. Now, so basic principle, but notice there's a significant concept. This central, again, this one's made differently. The menorah in, in the tabernacle had a central pole that made it seven. So you have six, which is in the Hebrew mindset, the number of man, three and three, but they're just hanging out in space on their own. 
They have no support. They have no structure. They have no purpose until you put in the seventh light, which is to support them. It's almost like the idea of uh, him being the vine and us being the branches, um, which again is a strong connection point to this story and to who Jesus was in the menorah. Um, it is beaten gold. This is significant. We're going to see that most of the items in the tabernacle are wood covered with gold. We'll talk about that next week. Wood covered with gold. And most commentators re- believe that the wood represents man and the gold represents God. <clears throat> and so it's interesting. There's only two articles in the entire tabernacle that are pure gold. And one of them is the menorah. Imagine how difficult that would have been as they poured the gold probably into the basic shape, but then they had to hammer out fine details into the gold. The tiny little hammers and chisels that they used to make little dents until they formed the art of that. It takes great care. It is, it is beaten. From top to bottom, the gold is beaten. Um, by the way, it's also lit using only, according to Exodus 27.20. 20. This is really weird language, by the way. It is, it is beaten oil. Oil that is beaten from the olive. Now, that's not how you get oil from an olive. You press olives. You can go, if you go with us to Israel sometime, you'll get to see these, these giant olive presses and the way they press out the oil um, and to make this olive oil that's only the most fine, perfect oil can be used in the tabernacle or used in the temple. Um, but but this, this pressed, not typically beaten. So for to use the word beaten is strange here. And many people think that again, you have a connection to this idea that the son of man was beaten, the oiling process. Remember the oil process, the first oil, pure and burned. It was pure and it burned pure. It does connect us to the olive, uh, to the olive press at Gethsemane. So when you read about the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was and he prayed, Gethsemane means olive press. That's what a Gethsemane is. So there was an olive press on the Mount of Olives. Of course, that would make sense. And Jesus is there at the garden where the Gethsemane was. And and he is there. And Jesus is also pressed in the garden. That's clearly an intentional thing uh, in the language in the Gospels, is is that Jesus is there and he's under a ton of pressure. And what is squeezed out of him? Is it oil? No, it's drops of blood. He, under the pressure, he is literally, his, his blood becomes the oil pressed out of him. But when we look at this, we look at what was produced. Look at, look at Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, a prophecy about <clears throat> Israel and Israel's Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So is there a significance? Is it a typology? Is it teaching us about Jesus that the, that the menorah was beaten gold and that the olive was beaten uh, oil? Maybe. Maybe that's part of the, 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 the telling us about who Jesus is. I don't know. Maybe that's just an insight. Maybe that's what the authors say. Maybe God hardwired that one in. <clears throat> it is significant to me that the menorah was the only meaningful source of light in the tabernacle. Now, you might have had the glory of God. Sometimes the glory of God shone out from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. That would have been light. But with the exception of the the actual glory of God shining out, the only real source of light was this thing. And these heavy drapes, if you walked in, it would be pitch black inside of this, even in the middle of the day, the way way these drapes were hung. It was intentionally to be very dark in there. And that would be a little bit creepy, I think. 
<clears throat> but for the Jewish mind to consider the word of like glory and light. So just so you will know, from now on as a good Jewish audience, when you read the word glory written by a Hebrew author like Matthew, uh, Luke, and well at least Matthew and John, maybe the authors, the research that the others did, but to read that like with John, you should think glory, you should think tabernacle. And when you think light in reference to glory, you should think menorah. And I think that's correct. In John 1.14, John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think this is, again, connecting these. When we think menorah, we think light. Menorah literally just means to shine. So anytime we see the idea of light, we should picture what they did. Um, I've referenced uh, this year Hanukkah will be from the 18th through the 26th, if you have any uh, uh, Jewish friends, and to, to reference the festival of light that Jesus also attended at least once, um, we see in the Gospel of John. Um, and so when I think of, dark, of light, by the way, <clears throat> maybe it's just because I grew up out in the woods and spending a lot of time outdoors um, without sources of light, but when I think of light, my instinct is to think of no longer dark. <clears throat> that may seem obvious to everybody, but that's actually what it comes to me. I think of the tension and the nerves and the insecurity and the uncertainty of a scary noise when it's really dark outside and I don't know what's around and I don't see what's there. And so you turn on a light and what, what I experience that comes with that is relief. When you turn on the light, a sense of relief. I love the idea of some poor guy having to creep into the tabernacle, maybe while it's still dark, Scared of, I mean, there's not a bunch of stuff you can just touch in the tabernacle, right? I mean, you go to the wrong place at the wrong time, people get struck dead in these, with these articles. And so him going into the tabernacle and quickly lighting the first of the lamps, the first of the seven lamps. And as the lamps, more and more of them were lit and the light in, and he begins to feel the peace of the presence of God, that this is a safe place to be. More relaxed, less tense, a sigh of relief and peace. The light has overcome the darkness. Again, John uses this theology behind the imagery. In John 1, 4, and 5, in him was life. And life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, when we think of light and the coming of Christ, the nativity, we consider the star described in Matthew chapter 2 by the wise men. It's a perfect picture. Maybe, once again, the star is a typology of the menorah, this light that shines in the night. When it's dark and a light shines to reveal that God is doing some great thing. I'm always struck by the star. The star is such a fascinating picture to me in that a star, it's not like everyone couldn't see the star. It's a star. Everyone could see it. At some point, everyone would be able to see it, at least in some season, you would think. And yet most people just saw it and dismissed it. They saw a star and thought, that's cool. And then they just moved along. Versus this handful of wise men <clears throat> who knew prophecy well enough, probably from the time, they'd been studying it from the time of Daniel. Now for 600 years they'd been passing down these understandings <clears throat> of Scripture and prophecy, and they see a star arise and they know this means something special. I think the fact that the menorah was the only source of light and the tabernacle only meaningful source of light teaches us something about Jesus entering into a dark world, following that pattern, as always, of God bringing light to darkness. The world grows dark, and God sends a light bringer, a light bearer, a symbol of the light, a type of the light. Noah was one. He rescued mankind from our own violence and depravity through the flood. Moses was one. 
Samuel, who we've been studying, is one. Isaiah was one. John the Baptist was one. And Jesus is the one. The complete fulfillment of the idea of the light of God coming to man. Announced by angels and shepherds. So my encouragement is that we accept the free peace that he offers. He came here. He lived as one of us, but he did it without sin. Then as our representative, he paid off the debt that mankind owed to the demands of justice. Um, You know, we need someone from the outside to rescue us. We need someone to to set us free, even of ourselves. We we deconstruct our faith in us, in our recognition of of our need and how much we need. This connection to the darkness from the light is common in the life of Jesus and is is closely linked to the idea of peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, he welcomes us into the light first in our understanding and someday forever. Paul and John found this reference um, from Revelation as well. You don't have it on the screen, so you'll just have to look it up or listen. Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23. Here you have the eternal city that God has come to for the final time dwell with us. To bring his whole city here, not just a tabernacle, but the actual throne room is brought here. And in verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So notice how the temple is a typology that the Lamb and God fulfill. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Not very subtle. Here you have the fulfillment of the typology of the lamp. The lamp was the lamb to help us understand that this light was coming. There's an ultimate expression of him. In another place, these things are closely connected, especially at the time of nativity, and I want to share it with you. So if you will, stand. And and I don't know how the Spirit has spoken this morning. Um, If you don't know Christ as Savior, if you've never accepted the free gift of peace and grace that He offers, I hope you will. Um, I hope you'll look to Him and trust Him to be the light, to be your light. And, And not just as a gimmick, not just as a con, not just as a religious experience, but to really realize we need something to rescue us from this darkness. And, and all of us, even those who are believers, sometimes it's like we're in the light, but we close our eyes and cover our eyes and we forget that He is the light. And that we can be reminded again and again, whatever we face, our trust is in Him as the source of light. We're merely like the moon. We reflect His light. We don't create it. Only He, only the divine, only the gold can produce light. Um, And so we get the opportunity to reflect His light and to be comforted by His light. So if you've never experienced that comfort, I hope you'll come and and pray and we'll pray with you. You can put your faith in Him as the light forever. And then you can experience um, that eternal city that way. So if, if you've already been through our welcome home process. You've talked to Lance and you've talked to members of our team for that. And you want to come in and enlist with our dysfunctional family. Uh, Again, not abusive or toxic, please. Just dysfunctional. Um, But that you would come and and you would want to join with us. We'd love to have you do that as well. So let's join me, if you will, in the fields outside of Bethlehem late one night. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night in the dark. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be with 
be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The very words of God.